Amen, and good singing, y'all. Welcome to Centennial Church. My name is Ross. So glad that you're here and guests. A special welcome to you. So glad that you're here to worship with us this morning. Thanks for being here on this Valentine's Day. And before I talk about Valentine's, let me first uh, talk about the holiday that uh, we experience Tuesday and Wednesday. Wednesday is typically called Ash Wednesday, but uh, Tuesday, you may know, is often called Fat Tuesday. Uh, we called Tuesday around here Tex-Mex Tuesday. And we, uh, a bunch of us gathered here on Tuesday night for Tex-Mex Tuesday, which was basically a church-wide potluck with Tex-Mex as the feature. And so uh, we all stuffed ourselves, uh, had a great time of fellowship together. But that was a kickoff for this Easter season. As, as Brent mentioned earlier, we have for several years uh, as a church family participated in a Lenten challenge Uh, The 40-day challenge leading up to Easter to prepare our hearts, to prepare us spiritually for the celebration of Christ's resurrection. And what we're doing this year as a challenge for that Lenten season, some of you may have done this in the past. If you grew up Roman Catholic, you remember the season of Lent and maybe you gave up uh, meat or maybe you gave up chocolate for those 40 days. Well, we're, we're doing something unique here this year is that we're doing kind of a plus minus We're uh, encouraging you to not only take something away, but also add something that might uh, deepen your walk with God and might uh, tenderize your heart uh, as we prepare for Christ's resurrection. So over here to my left, you're right, you see that we have a cross. And what we did on Tuesday nights is many of, Tuesday night, many of us wrote on that card. On one side of the little cards, there's more down uh, at the bottom there. There's a plus sign. And on the other side, there's a minus sign. And so... Uh, after the sermon this morning, we're going to participate in communion. And during that time, we also want to invite those of you that weren't here on Tuesday or weren't quite ready to make that commitment, what you wanted to add or subtract. During communion, you can come forward, participate in communion, but also go over here to the cross and you can uh, begin your Lenten challenge today. Okay, we, you, you will not be eternally penalized for being about three or four days late. Okay. It's no problem. Uh, So I'm participating in this. I hope that you will. Uh, Those of you that are on Facebook know that I'm shedding Facebook for 40 days. So I apologize for that. You will not get to see pictures of what I'm eating for lunch and uh, funny YouTube videos that I post and uh, pictures of my kids and all that. So, but I will be back in 40 days. Okay, so no, no worries. Uh, that's what that's about. Ash Wednesday, uh, Tex-Mex Tuesday. Thank God for Tex-Mex, right? Well, today is Valentine's, so happy Valentine's Day. This is the one day a year that we set aside to commemorate and to celebrate love. And I thought that uh, it might be appropriate uh, for us to talk about love today. I got a new microphone, and I hear it uh, in the back. Do you hear that? we're going to talk about love this morning, but I thought uh, a month or so ago, I thought we have, we have some very uh, gifted, smart, uh, technologically savvy people, and I came to them with an idea a while back that, hey, on Valentine's Day, why don't we, through kind of our computer cloud system thing that we have, kind of generate a, um, a uh, survey of who might be uh, the best spouse, the best wife 
amongst our audience and uh, just kind of tabulate those results. And everybody told me that was a terrible idea, but I'm uh, pretty stubborn, so I pushed on through. And so we got through the men's Bible study and stuff. We got a lot of information uh, about the ladies here at CC and kind of, you know, how good of a cook they are, uh, just kind of how they're doing on their, on their uh, Bible reading plan and uh, how clean they keep the house and all, all other types of kind of guilt-inducing uh, categories. And we put that all in the cloud system and, uh, you know, it was ranked as, you know, numerically ranked. And so it would spit out through this, you know, fancy, uh, very high-tech algorithm that we developed. Again, these, these people are smarter than me. You'll see uh, some of that next year. But we put that all in the cloud system to see, you know, what it would spit out as who, you know, over the last year has been the best Valentine, the best uh, wife in the congregation. So I have the envelope here this morning that was just given to me. I do not know what it says, but I'm going to be able to award uh, the winner here this morning in uh, just a minute. So I'll, you know, ahead and open that up. Um, so anyway, <laughs> Elizabeth Beebe, where is she? Uh, Happy Valentine's, my love. I thank all you men for participating in that. What's that? Uh, what was really in the card? You'll, you'll, you can, I better hide that. I'm going to take that back. Hey, everyone loves love. Everyone loves love. Everybody wants to celebrate love. I would submit to you this morning that there, uh, though there's a, a wonderful celebration of love, everybody loves love. When asked to really describe and define what true love is, uh, the waters get muddy. We don't agree on what uh, love looks like, what it means to truly love someone, but all people everywhere want to celebrate love. No one is anti-love. Everyone is pro-love, right? Uh, You can say some really controversial things if you want to uh, publicly. You can say that uh, you believe Jesus is God, that you believe that the Bible is true, and in the public sphere... In our contemporary culture, you might be scoffed at. Jesus is the only way to God. Pa, whatever. You're off your rocker. But man, if you say, I believe in love, no problem with that. No one is anti-love. If you say, God loves you, most people won't even argue with that. Everyone loves love. But the question is, what does love really mean? What does it truly mean to love someone? Even a week ago today, as we were watching Super Bowl 50 at the end of the halftime show, what did we see in the stadium as they were, many of the spectators were holding up cards, and then at the end of the Super Bowl uh, halftime show, it said, it spelled out, believe in love. Believe in love. Everyone loves love, but what does love mean? And I would submit to you this morning that there are a lot of faulty views about love. People don't think about what it really means oftentimes. So I think it's pretty easy to make my case this morning. Uh, largely in our culture, I think uh, love is based upon physical attraction, is, is based upon just sheer beauty. 
But I think we could crush that if we, if we could all come together and discuss this. If I showed you this morning a picture of a, a newlywed couple, maybe they're in their early 20s, mid-20s, and they're a beautiful, uh, glamorous, perhaps they're a California, you know, model's Hollywood stars, 25 years old, newlywed couple that are just beautiful. I say, well, they love each other. But if I showed you a picture of a 75-year-old couple holding hands who had been together for 50 years, you know, this is not exactly the notebook story, but similar to that, you know, they've, they've weathered the storms. If we put those couples next to each other and say, what is a better picture of love? I think... Maybe not unanimously, but all of us would agree, man, it's the couple that's been together for 50 years, weathered those storms, committed to each other. That is a deeper, more solid, more true love than just a merely physical love. Am I wrong? So the world tends to often can define love uh, merely, simply by the physical, by uh, attraction, by beauty. Uh, What about this? Oftentimes, people are caught, sadly, in a relationship, in a domestic situation of abuse because they believe the loving thing to do is to stay in that home even if their children are at risk, even if they are being physically abused. They talk themselves into staying in that situation, staying in that relationship, and saying the loving thing to do is stick with them. I would submit to you this morning that that is not love. That is enablement. That the loving thing to do would be to put boundaries, would be to keep your children in a loving situation, to get out of that situation. Oftentimes, love today is defined as just unconditional acceptance. Just love means getting what you want. Showing someone love means giving them what they want, giving them what they ask for. But if you think about this for a few seconds, it's easily demolished if you just think about your kids. You know, our kids are constantly asking us for stuff that's ultimately not good for them. Hey, can I just eat Halloween candy for dinner the next three nights? No, you cannot. Well, you don't love me. Yes, I do love you. In fact, it's because I love you that I am withholding that from you. True love doesn't mean just accepting anything and everything that someone wants to do. Sometimes love, for the good of that person, puts boundaries. Sometimes love says no. Sometimes, uh, whether it's a situation at work or maybe it's with a spouse or a close friend or whatever, sometimes we can think the loving thing to do is just avoidance. You know what? Uh, I know I should probably say something here, but I'm not going to. I just don't want to rock the boat right? Just kind of go to work, do my deal, and and not get involved and just kind of stay neutral. We all know a situation where behavior has become hurtful to a person or has become hurtful to that person's loved ones. Think about uh, those of us that have been addicts or have dealt with addicts. The addict might tell you, hey, Let me do what I want. But many of us know in a process we call intervention, the most loving thing we can do is this thing called intervention where we circle up and we say, hey, bro, I love you, we love you, but it's because we love you that we are coming to you to intervene because what you're doing is destructive. And it would be unloving for us not 
to intervene, not to not confront you about this. So there's all sorts of faulty ideas, faulty understandings about what love is on this Valentine's Day that we will hear and talk a lot about love. So what is love? Obviously, Jesus talked about love, and we'll get to Jesus' words on love here in just a second, but let me offer to you my working definition of love, okay? And I call it a working definition because I'm not sure it's uh, bulletproof. I labored over this with my lovely wife, who is also a counselor yesterday, and trying to craft this definition of love, okay? So if you hate it, uh, if you can poke some holes in it, come and talk to me afterwards, okay? So working definition of love. Love, I'm going to say, is initiating sacrificial action and affection in service to another's true needs and true good. Initiating sacrificial action and affection. Notice that I haven't just said affection. Oftentimes in our culture, love is just defined as feeling. So you fall in love, like I might fall off this stage. You kind of accidentally fell in love and Ah, then you might accidentally fall out of love because the feeling is gone. It's not affection only. Or else, man, love is fleeting. There has to be a commitment. There has to be a sacrifice. But we also know, and perhaps you've experienced this in a friendship or in your marriage, where if love is just action, if it is just duty and there is no affection with it, it just, it's, it, it's no longer love. It's just kind of this guilt-inducing, uh, fear-led love of like, hey, I better, you know, take out the trash or I'm going to hear about it, you know? It's not out of love. It's out of guilt or maybe it's out of fear. So put that back up there again. Uh, sacri- initiating sacrificial action and affection in service to another's true needs and true good. Why do I say needs and true and true good? Because often love is, hey, this is what I want, the kids, you know, this is what I want, you, therefore you should give it to me. But it's a good parent that looks out for the child, not wants, but needs. And if I give this to you in the sense that it will not help you, whether it's alcohol or drugs or whatever it is you want, if it's not for your good, then it's not loving of me to give it to you, okay? So that's my working definition again, and you can poke holes in it later if you like. We'll talk about some of these elements as we go on. So turn with me to Jesus' words on love in John chapter 13. John chapter 13, and we're going to read uh, verses 31 through 35. We'll really just focus on two verses, 34 and 35, but we'll set the context here in 31 through 33. So John chapter 13, 31 through 35. And as you get there, I want to encourage you to get there because I want you to see this for yourself in your Bible I'll read it and then pray for us, okay? John 13, verses 31 through 34. You are welcome. That was your true need, so I gave it to you. John 13, 31 through 35. Here we go. When he had gone out, Jesus said, Now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself and glorify him at once. Little children, yet a little while I am with you. You will seek me, and just as I said to the Jews, so now I also say to you, where I am going, you cannot come. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another just as I have loved you. 
you also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you that you know love, that you are love, that you created love for us to experience and to enjoy, for relationship with you and for relationship with others. Lord, I pray that your spirit would guide our time here, including my thoughts and my words, and that your word, your spirit, would transform us to be like Jesus, to grow in love, Father. We thank you especially for your love for us, that it might propel us, compel us to greater love ourselves. It's in the name of Jesus we pray. Amen. Well, Jesus talked about love, and everybody loves that Jesus talked about love. And here are not his only words on love, but some of his words on love. And you'll see the context quickly in verses 31 through 33 gives us the context. And the broader context here of John chapter 13 is that we're getting ready in these words, Jesus is gonna have the last supper with his disciples. This is the Thursday night before he would go to the cross on Friday. So these are some of Jesus' last words. John 13 through John 17. It's a big teaching section uh, in John of Jesus' last words. We spent last summer talking only about John 17. We did an entire sermon series on just chapter 17 of John. Our ladies' Bible study right now have just begun this week, a study through the Gospel of John. I encourage you to uh, get there. They have a beautiful teacher, by the way. Uh, John. So the, the context is this wider context of, of his ministry is almost over. So these are his last words. And verses 31 through 33, he lets them know, hey, I'm, I'm going away. I'm only with you a little while. Uh, verse 33, uh, you will seek me. And just as I said to the Jews, so now I also say to you, where I am going, you cannot come. So immediate context here. Jesus says, I'm going away. So in the context of Jesus' absence, in the context of his separation, he is saying, love. I'm going to go away. I'm going to be absent. So therefore, be present with one another. You're going to be separated from me. I'm going to the cross. I'm ultimately going to go and ascend back to the Father. You're going to be separated from me, but stay connected to one another. Be tight, love one another. That's the context. In his absence, that we love one another. Why is this a new commandment? Why does Jesus call this a new commandment? This is the last message in our uh, New Year series here that we've been calling All Things New. And I wasn't originally planning to do this message, but then when it dawned on me, hey, that Sunday is Valentine's Day, I was like, hey, why not talk about Jesus' new commandment? Love, why is it new? Why does Jesus call this a new commandment? Doesn't God tell people all throughout time, through the Old Testament and everywhere, to to love? Why does Jesus say that this is new? And I want to offer to you this morning that Jesus' words here are new because it gives us a new object, someone to love. It tightens the object, actually. We'll explain that in a second. It gives us a new object, a new extent, 
and a new outcome, okay? A new object, a new extent, and a new outcome. First of all, let's look at the new object, or maybe a better way to say it is, who are we to love, okay? In the Old Testament, there were, God gave his people, uh, he told, he commanded his people to love. But primarily, the commandment in the Old Testament was love your neighbor. Love your neighbor. Here, Jesus is saying, love one another. In fact, three times you read there, one another, one another. Just as I have loved you, you also love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Now, who are the one another's here? Well, in this immediate context, it's just the 12 disciples, isn't it? Jesus is alone. He's not preaching to a crowd here. He's not saying, you all love everyone. The immediate context here, and there's application for this, is Jesus is saying, you love your brothers. You love the community that I have created here. Now, why is this significant? It's significant because, again, in the Old Testament, the emphasis seems to be on love your neighbor. Leviticus chapter 19, I believe it is, this talks, Jesus, or God, excuse me, the Father is telling uh, Israel to love their neighbor. But even then, it's in the sense of don't retaliate, but love your neighbor. And here, Jesus is saying, yeah, love your neighbor. He's gonna, Jesus is going to repeat that commandment, love your neighbor. But here, he is drilling down. He is focusing. He is, in fact, narrowing the emphasis of that love. And that love is to whom? to one another, to the believing community, to the church, if you will. These 12. Now, Judas is quickly here in this section of Scripture is going to abandon, betray Jesus. But Jesus is looking at these 12 guys saying, here's my commandment, new commandment, love one another. Love one another. Because you're getting ready to face some trials. You're getting ready to face some persecution. And you guys need to stick together. You need to love one another deeply. And as you love one another deeply, in verse 35, you see the outcome. The outcome of their love, their deep love for one another, is that ultimately that's the sign to the world that they really belong to Jesus. How well they love one another. So does Jesus say love everyone? Yes, he does. Jesus does miracles. He he heals the outcasts. He associates with uh, women of ill repute as he ministers. He doesn't just narrow his love to a particular race or a particular gender or a particular kind. Jesus was extravagant in his love. But he also in this passage says, your number one priority is one another, the believing community. You could say it like this, your adoptive family. Jesus has created this new community of the 12. He's created this new community of the church. And I want you to love one another, love one another, love one another three times. Why does he have to command them to love one another? Why does he have to command us to love one another? Well, I'll tell you why. Because people are crazy. And sometimes they're hard to love. It might be even easier to love your neighbor because you move next door to them and you kind of have the same income and probably the same social status and and you, you might like them. You might have things in common because you attend the same schools or whatever. But who is he talking about here? He's talking about a radically diverse group of people. You've got fishermen, James, John, Peter, Andrew, and then you've got these other guys. One of them uh, is a Herodian which means he, he su- 
He supported Herod politically. You got another guy named Simon who's called a zealot. Okay? You've got Matthew who was a tax collector for Rome. Matthew, this Jewish guy who's a tax collector for the Roman occupiers of Israel. Now think about this. Matthew, tax collector, originally called Levi. Simon the zealot. What did the zealots want to do at the time of Christ? They were zealous. Revolt. Throw off the Romans. So politically, Simon and Matthew are polar opposites. One is this patriot, this nationalist, and the other is this supporter of the occupying Rome. Imagine how difficult it was for them to come together and put their arms around each other and love each other. So Jesus is saying, love each other because you guys are a mess and you're different and it's hard to love one another. People are crazy and they're going to have different backgrounds than you and different interests and uh, different economic status and different colors and welcome to the church. Love one another. He had to command it to them because they didn't do it naturally. People are crazy and we naturally don't come together. We naturally divide. How many of you have young children that just naturally clean up their rooms? They just get up in the morning and they just are, the first thing they do when their feet hit the floor is, I think I'll clean up my room. Our kids' rooms yesterday were a mess And I was so ticked off about it. We just cleaned this a couple, you know, I have to tell my kids to clean up their room over and over. Why? Because it's not natural to them. They don't just naturally get up and clean their rooms. It's it's not just overflowing from their heart to clean their rooms and to make it nice. Now, I'm trying to to train them so that they can appreciate personal responsibility and cleanliness. And, you know, there was a time in my life where I was like, make the bed. I'm just going to get in it, you know, in 12 hours. Why make the bed? You know, I love the bed made. I'm trying to train my children to appreciate something. But it's not their natural tendency to clean up their room. Guess what? The Bible would say it's not our natural tendency to love people different than us. It's our natural tendency to be selfish to be stingy, to put people at arm's length, to put on a mask, to stay by ourselves. And Jesus is saying here, this is so important, guys. I'm going away, but you've got to love one another, and you've got to love one another deeply, sacrificially. You've got to show the world what it means to be a follower of Jesus by loving. How many of you know where to find the love chapter in the Bible. 1 Corinthians 13, right? How many of you had this read at your wedding? Probably every wedding, you know, 80 to 90% of the weddings you go to, what is read is 1 Corinthians 13, the love chapter, right? You all, you all know it, right? If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I'm a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and can fathom all mysteries and all knowledge, but I have not love, I gain nothing. If I give my body to the poor, but have not love, it profits me nothing. And then you know it. Love is patient. Love is kind. Notice the first attribute of love, patience. Love is patient. Love is kind. Love does not boast. Love is not envious. He goes on this beautiful chapter of love. Most of us have this 
read at our weddings or we hear it read at all the weddings that we go to. Why do we read that chapter about love? Because we love it so much. Do you know who that chapter was originally written to? It was originally written to this cute, glamorous Jewish couple of about 25 years old. They uh, loved each other. They were on the covers of all the magazines. And so the Apostle Paul, I'm kidding, this is sarcasm. So the Apostle Paul thought, let's write a chapter for their glamorous, you know, Hollywood wedding. And he came up with a love chapter. No, absolutely not. Do you know who 1 Corinthians 13 is written to? It's written to a church. It's written to the Corinthians. The love chapter is written to a church telling them, love one another. It's not written to a happy, beautiful, engaged couple. And it's fine to use it in our, our, our weddings. I did. But his point here, Paul's point in 1 Corinthians 13, Jesus' point here in John 13 is that the church should be a living example, exemplary to the community of unity and love, love one another. And the emphasis, again, is the one another, the people, the fellow believers. Now, we don't hear about this a lot in church. Oftentimes, it's just indiscriminate. Hey, just love everyone. And Jesus did love. He loved the outcasts. He loved the Gentiles. This one uh, lady that came to him for healing, the, the world called her a dog. Jesus loves her. So Jesus does love everyone, but right here is focus. Your highest priority of relationship, your highest priority of connection is love. Paul will talk about this in Galatians 6, uh, verse 10. Let me read that to you. Galatians 6, 10 says, So then, as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone, especially to those who are of the household of the faith. Now, he doesn't specifically say love here, but look what he's saying. He's saying serve, do good to whom? Everyone, okay, there it is. Be extravagant in your love, but there's another E word after everyone, and what is that? Especially to those who are of the household of faith. That's what Jesus is saying. That's what Paul is saying. Be an example of loving connection, of loving relationship. That's the object, that's the focus, at least in this case, of Jesus commanding us to love to be a church that loves one another. And folks, let me tell you this. We can't love one another if we're not together. And we can't love one another if we don't know one another. And so we've got to spend time with one another. This one of our goals that you'll hear about in our family meeting next week is to reemphasize and to reform our groups here as a church, to get people out of rows and into circles where we can relate to where we can go through life together, where we can pray for one another and we know one another's needs. We know what one another's good is because we're together. You can't love one another if you don't know others, if you're not known by others. You can't care for me unless you know about me effectively. I can't care for you. I can't shepherd you. I can't pastor you if I never see you or if I see you once in a blue moon. The new object is one another, the new extent. The new extent is all about sacrifice. Look at verse 34 again. Verse 34, the extent, the new commandment I give to you, a new commandment I give to you that you love one another and then underline just as. 
Love one another just as I have loved you. You also are to love one another. What's new about this new commandment is the extent to which Jesus says we ought to love each other, and that is the extent of his love, which is sacrificial. You can't love without sacrifice. You can't meaningfully love without sacrifice of your time, of your energy, of your money, Jesus loved us through sacrifice, and he commands us. This new commandment is new in its extent, just as I have loved you. How did Jesus love us? Well, the most famous verse in the Bible says what? For God so loved the world, and then it tells us how he loved. For God so loved the world that he gave. That he gave what? That he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. Sacrificial. Listen to John, the same author, 1 John 4.10. 1 John 4.10, John is going to say, this is love. This is how I define love. Listen to this. In this is love. I'm getting ready to tell you what love is. That's what John is saying. In this is love. Not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. What is love? Not that we came to God. Love is that God came to us and he made himself in Jesus the payment for our sins. It was sacrificial. It was costly. A new extent, a costly, sacrificial love. Jesus is also going to talk about loving your enemies. We can all love our friends. We can all love the people that we like. Jesus is going to say in Matthew chapter 5, verses 43 and 44, he's going to say, you've heard it said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. What the extent of that love, the extravagance, the sacrifice of that love to love your enemies, to pray for your enemies, to want the good of your enemies. What's new about the new commandment is not only that it focuses us on the believing community especially, but it also raises the bar to the measure, to the extent of that love that we have for one another. Thirdly, there's a new outcome. A new outcome. In verse 35, we see the effect of our love for one another. Look at that again. Verse 35, by this, all people will know that you are my my disciples if you have love for one another. How is the watching world going to know that you are a follower of Jesus? How is the watching world going to know that Centennial Church is for Jesus? by the way we love one another. Not by how much we know of the Bible, not by how much emotion uh, we show, but the world will know that we're disciples, will know that we're followers of Jesus by the way we love, intentionally, sacrificially. The world's watching you. The world's watching us as a community. And they'll see, are those people legit? Or they just talk a big game? But when we sacrifice, when we help people move into their house, when we take meals to them when they're in tough times, when we go to their home and fellowship and study the scriptures, when we give of ourselves when they are in the hospital and visit them, when we go to their kids' sporting events and support, it shows the world that we love. The world is watching us. The world is watching you. The world is watching 
Centennial Church. And our love, our unity, the Bible, the New Testament is constantly talking about our unity as a church and our love for one another. It's key. New object, a new extent, and a new outcome, excuse me. I want to talk about some application here. How do we become a people like Jesus who love one another well? In 2016, in Collin County, how do we do that? And I'll offer some applications this morning, okay? The world is trying to make us like itself. In fact, Paul's going to say in Romans chapter 12, verse 2, Romans 12, 2, Paul's going to say, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. The world is trying to conform us into its image rather than the image of Jesus. One old translation, the Phillips translation says, don't let the world squeeze you into its mold. Don't be conformed by the world. Church, you have to be in the world, but don't let the world conform you. So let me ask you this morning, what does the world want to conform you and me into in 2016 in Collin County? What? Successful, wealthy people, people that accumulate a lot of stuff, people that are, that are constantly busy with activity, people that want status, people that want uh, success, people that want things right now, people that not only have children, but their children lead them around, lead the parents around like on a leash, like, mom, dad, you're my taxi driver. I'm the king, you know, be at my beck and call. Not only is, is Collin County full of accumulation, full of busyness, activity, the world squeezing us into the mold, it's also incredibly child-centered. Man, if you don't have your kids in this activity and that activity and you don't have them prepared for the best of colleges and they don't make a 4.0 and all this stuff and you got to do this early and you got to stick with it and everything, everything busy. That's, that seems to be the mold that this world wants to squeeze us into. Spend as much as you can, as much as you can on yourself. Accumulate as much as you can. If you can't pay for it now, We'll just go into debt and pay for it later. Get it now. That seems to be what the world wants to conform us to. And the scriptures say, be in the world but not of the world. Do not conform to the world but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. And let me offer three areas that I think we can be countercultural. We can be nonconformist, if you will, in our day, in our area, in our age, okay? They, they all start with P, okay? It's nice and cute. So the three things are people, place, and pace. People, place, and pace. We should have a slide of this. What do I mean by people? First of all, the way we can be nonconformist is by truly valuing people, truly valuing relationships. Because we live in an age where things are becoming more and more virtual, excuse me, more and more digital, and less and less personal. So we're busy, and we're too busy for relationships, and the essence of God in himself is relationships. 
God is Trinity, Father, Son, and Spirit. Before there was power, before there was sovereignty of God, God exists in relationship. His essence is relationship. And He created us in the image of God to be relational people, people. To be deeply connected to one another and the busyness and the activity and the accumulation all works against making the main things the main things. And that is people, relationships. We've been talking as a staff and as, as elders about how, how can we be nonconformist? How can we be, get this, radically relational in this day and age? And here's one practical thing that I've come up with and, and tried to practice. Here's a non-conforming practice. See this thing? Here's a practice I'd like us to develop as a Christian disciple, as followers of Jesus. It's really simple. All you do is that when you sit down for lunch with someone, when you're in a meeting with something, you take this thing and you put it in your pocket. And you don't ever look at it again until you're out of their presence. Now you might think that's silly. But you know what I think that is? I think that is a soft but very impactful way of saying, I care about you. And it drives me nuts. I just got this new phone, by the way. Brand new phone. I haven't even got a case for it yet. I'm afraid I'm going to drop it. I love this thing. It really helps me in my life and and my day-to-day activities and staying organized and staying on top of these things. But you know what? It also gets in my way sometimes. And one of the most guilt-inducing things I hear fairly regularly from my kids is, Dad, get off your stupid phone. You know what's radically relational? To put down the screens and to be FaceTime. Real, old-fashioned FaceTime. How can we do that? How can we be radically relational people in a world that is more and more virtual, I'm having a hard time saying that word this morning. Virtual, digital, and impersonal. Christians should be the most personal, relational people in the world. And I'm not getting on to introverts right now, okay? I happen to be an introvert. Like after today, I'll go home and I'll be wiped out and I won't want to see any of you anymore today. I'll be exhausted. But I love people. And even introverts, you don't have to have 100 friends, but even introverts need a deep, meaningful connection with a few other people. That's what Jesus is calling us to, for all of us to be deeply connected to all of someone else, beyond just our spouse, but to love one another, to be radically relational. As I said before, we're going to emphasize this this coming year with our groups. We're going to restart that, reemphasize our groups ministry around here. You'll hear more about that next week. We also always, ongoing, have men's and women's Bible studies. The purpose of those is to connect with one another. Women need other women in their lives. Thursday nights, 6.30, or is it 6? 6 o'clock. Men, we get together every Friday morning, 6.30 to 7.30 a.m. for connection, for time around God's Word, okay? You can't love other people if you don't know other people. You can't be cared for if you're not in relationship with other people. That's people. Secondly, place. Now, I had to have a P word, but okay. So people, place. Think of this, though, as hospitality. Here's another radical thing that we can do as believers in 2016. 
with our neighbors, with our, with our church friends, with our small group. You know what? It's something radical that is slowly eroding from our culture. That is using our place, using my home, practicing what's called good old hospitality. You remember that word? Hospitality, where you welcome friends and neighbors into your home. You slow down and maybe even instead of picking up a pizza, you actually put something in the oven or something. But you slow down and you practice hospitality. You invite people into your home. You know what? I think more and more that is going to be a radically Christian thing to do. To open your home to strangers, to open your home to your neighbors, to open your home to your small group. Interestingly too, what's the root word of hospitality? Hospital. When we, when we practice hospitality, what's it about? It's not about having the best meal of the week. It's not about having the house all perfectly clean. It's about creating a hospitable environment that allows for what? Time and healing and health. Amen. People, place, good old hospitality. I've got to race through this here, but finally, pace. People, place, pace. You know what I think one of the deadliest things in our culture right now consistently is? Busyness. I did a whole sermon series a couple years ago on crazy busy. Look it up. But again, activity, activity, activity. Your kids have got to be in everything all the time, every night of the week. And folks, the pace is not only unhealthy. I think it really, really, really is a huge obstacle to our walk with God and our walk in deep relationship with other people. So folks, we've got to slow down. I wrote it down like this. You can err by running the wrong race and you can err by running the wrong pace. Many of you are not off on some crazy path, on some wrong race, but many of us are at a speed, at a pace that really needs to be checked. Can't do everything. Moms, can't do everything. And speed, thought about this week, when is speed helpful? It's really, speed is rarely helpful or healthy. Now, probably your boss wants you to go fast. Your boss appreciates speed. But other than that, I thought about that. When is it helpful to be really fast? When is speed really beneficial? And I thought of three, maybe four things of when speed is really helpful. One, uh, speed is helpful for your track coach. Two, speed is helpful for your drug dealer if you're a drug dealer. And three, speed is helpful for your mortician. Speed. Otherwise, it's pretty unhelpful. But man, it is an epidemic in our lives. I can see it on your faces. I got to wrap up. Love one another. Love one another. Love one another. Jesus said to be about people. God is about people. Do you know that of all his creation, what he cares for most is people. That's who he died for, people. Not animals, but people. He cares about people. God's mission is people. And guess who his missionaries are? People. When God needed to save us, he didn't send us a Bible study. He didn't send us an email. 
He didn't send us a bumper sticker. He sent us a person to reach us, to love us. And you know what he does today? He sends people to reach other people. That's you and me. Start here, go everywhere. And let's be a church that loves well, that's identified by our love for one another. Pray with me. Father God, we thank you that you know love, that you are love, that you created love, that you want us to experience your love. You want us to be deeply connected to you and to other people. And God, forgive us for our masks. Forgive us for our busyness. Forgive us for our apathy. And God, help us this week to take risks and to make time to be radically relational to be people-focused, even if we're introverts, Lord, to, to reach out and to connect with a few and walk this road with others as you intended us to do. Thank you, God, for your love for us. Thank you for your love expressed in the person of Jesus. It's in his name we pray.